Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. We're going to tell you the story of Margaret and Paul. It was Holy Saturday in April of 1980 in Toledo, Ohio. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's the day before Easter. A young nun was on her way to chapel at Mercy Hospital and picked up a piece of linen she found folded on the floor, which she dropped in the pew when she entered. Once inside, she went into the sacristy to make a phone call. A sacristy is a small room in a Catholic church where sacred things are stored or things like the robes and the choir that the choir boys use. This nun goes in there and finds a 71-year-old sister Ann Margaret Paul dead on the floor. Her habit is pulled up to her chest, which exposed her, and her undergarments were pulled down around her ankles, which had the appearance that maybe Sister Ann Margaret had been raped. After more investigation, we become to find out that she was not raped, but there was a cross that was penetrating her left by the killer. She had been choked and stabbed 31 times in the neck, face, and many in the chest. In fact, there were nine stab wounds in her chest that depicted an upside-down cross. There was also blood smeared across her forehead, which was seen as a mockery as the last rites. The last rites is what is done when someone is on their deathbed. In the Catholic Church, the priest will anoint them with holy oil, which is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. The first question is, who on earth would want to kill Sister Margaret and Paul, why was she dead? She was one of nine children and grew up in a devout Catholic home. She knew from a young age she wanted to be a nun. Once she finished school, her parents and siblings made the drive to drop her off at the Sisters of Mercy Covenant in Fremont. This girl was only 19 years old at the time. I still haven't figured out my life, and I am much older than 19 I won't say how old I am um I can't believe she just knew what she wanted to do when she was so young I know so I'm older than you and I still don't know what I want to do half the time so she was also trained as a registered nurse and later became the director of the Mercy School of Nursing then the administrator at St. Charles Hospital as she got older though her hearing wasn't like what it used to be and she was considering retirement. Until then, though, she took care of the two chapels at what was then the Mercy Hospital. While she was very devoted to God, she was also devoted to order. She was only a little over five feet, but from what I could gather, she was a little spitfire. She wanted things neat and orderly, and she didn't mind telling you if you didn't do it her way, or maybe that was just the right way. I don't know. I guess you could say she ran a tight ship. She wasn't afraid of hard work, and I think she just expected things to be done the right way and wanted everyone to have the same work ethic that she did. 
So on the day of her murder, she was up at five that morning. She actually lived at the hospital on the top floor in a convent with about 20 other nuns. She was seen in the dining room around 6.15, getting a tray to put cleaning supplies on, and then back about 6.20 to eat. She told some of the workers in the cafeteria she was headed to St. Joseph's Chapel to prepare the altar for Easter weekend services. And that was the last anyone saw saw her alive. The nun who found her actually ran to the cafeteria because there were some police eating in there. They began to process the process of surveying the crime scene and wondered if this was a satanic killing. But they do know that whoever it was had to have had some kind of knowledge of the Catholic religion, too, because the blood smeared on the forehead we talked about. They take several cloths from the crime scene, one being what the nun had picked up on her way to the chapel because it appears to have blood on it. As well, maybe an imprint of a medallion. They later find out on the end of the was on the letter on the end of a letter opener. They take altar cloths because it appears that one was laid over her as she was stabbed through it and then was thrown by her feet. There's some kind of meaning to the altar cloth altar cloth in the Catholic religion that was that being done. I'm not real familiar with things like that. Not that I could find. I don't really know what the purpose of putting that over her would have been. Do you think maybe it was to keep blood from splattering back? I don't think so, but we will talk about it a little bit more, but I don't, I don't really see the purpose of of it. I don't know. So the police interview hundreds of people. I mean, the woman worked and lived in the hospital. Just think of all the people she had to encounter in a day. The police search Father Gerald Rob- Robbins' room, where he also resides at the hospital. They take a letter opener that appears to have blood on it. It also has a medallion at the bottom that they will later say looks like it was on the cloth that the nun found. He's questioned several times and given two lie detector tests. Also, in one of the interrogations, He tells police that the killer came in and confessed the murder to him during confessionals. The police don't buy this, and he later tells the police that he lied about this. None of this is, of course, on video back then. Not that they didn't use video back then, but one of the detectives said it was intimidating, and he didn't like to use video in interviews. And his supervisor was just like, okay, cool, don't use it then. Seems a little sus, but okay. (laughs) Right. Tell me about it. So there were five different detectives that worked on this case. All of them were Catholic. It said that Deputy Police Chief Ray Vetter interrupted an interview with the priest and allowed a monster to escort him out of the police station. The chief also told the detectives to give him their reports on the case, and some of those reports were never seen again. They did test what they thought was blood on the letter opener, and the test was inconclusive. Mind you, this was 1980, so I can't say what they had. After about a month, all leads dried up, and they just didn't do anything else. They didn't have anything else to go on, and also, if they did, would they even be allowed to pursue it? 
Yeah, it comes out a lot more now about all the cover-ups the police did for the Catholic Church and the cover-ups the churches also did for the police. It seems a little crazy to think that they would be involved in this, but, I mean, there's so many cases this happened on, I wouldn't be surprised. Yes, and I feel like it wasn't all the detectives. I mean, someone was looking into it, but it got shot down by the chief, who was also Catholic. So he did give orders. So did he give orders from the church? I mean, did he get orders from the church? We just, we don't know. I mean, and we're probably never going to know that. So we haven't really talked much about Father Robinson, but he became a priest when he was 26 years old. He was 44 at the time. Sister Margaret was murdered. And he was one of the chaplains at Mercy Hospital. People said he was a mild-mannered, quiet man. Was there any kind of motive or anything that would want to make him kill her? A lot of priests, it's been sexual misconduct, but you said she wasn't raped. Sister Margaret was brash, as I said before, and she didn't mind speaking her mind. She apparently let him know she didn't like him leaving the sacristy a mess when he would change before mass. The latest was just the day before on Good Friday when she criticized him for cutting mass short when it was traditionally a long service. So that's all. That's all I got. Okay, this sounds like a husband and wife bickering, not anything that even rises to motive for murder. I agree. Unless he felt he was married to the church because he didn't want to put up with some nitpicky wife and he still felt like he had one, then it would be the only reason I could see this. Yeah, but even then, I mean... I don't see murder motive. No, I don't really either. So, well, as the Catholic Church does, if a priest is in any way accused of something, they just move them somewhere else, which is exactly what they did with Father Robinson after the murder of Sister Margaret. For years, nothing else is done in this case. They just forget and move on. Then in 2003, a woman comes forward claiming to have been having memories recovered from being sexually abused and in satanic rituals in the Catholic Church. One of the people she says sexually abused her is none other than Father Robinson. She took her claims to the Diocese Review Board. This is a panel made up of mostly layperson. There are five to nine on here. One is a priest. One has expertise in the treatment of sexual abuse of minors. The Review Board was made to assist the bishop and diocese in determining and responding to allegations of sexual abuse of a minor. She testified that she was put in a coffin with roaches and had to ingest one. She was forced to eat a human eyeball. She was penetrated with a snake. She was forced to have an abortion and witnessed a three-year-old murdered by the priest. I don't want to discredit her, but this is some weird stuff. It's kind of given me some um, flashbacks of the McMartin preschool trial that we covered. I can't say how I would respond sitting on this board after hearing this stuff. But Dr. Robert Cooley, a licensed psychologist, and Claudia Versolito, I'm not sure I can say that. But a coordinator for Survivors Network for Abuse by the Priests are both on the board and they go to the attorney general's office with this. That's when the police are like, wait, we've heard that name before. While this 
Unnamed woman's allegations never really go further because they can't substantiate anything. She did at least bring Father Robinson back to life. The police decide they're going to look back into this case. They go as far as exhuming Sister Margaret's body. They get fingernail scrapings. They test her underwear. They retest the letter opener. They review everything. And then they arrest Father Robinson. I mean, they gathered a lot of evidence. I'm assuming it all pointed to him. Well, you would think that if they arrested him, that would be the case, right? But no, there is male DNA under her nails and on her underwear, but it doesn't match Father Robinson. They test the letter opener again, and it's still inconclusive. They do feel that the letter opener has the same pattern as the stab wounds that Sister Margaret ensued. So there is that. They have three witnesses that they say the priest was near the chapel around the time she was murdered. Okay, but he lives in the hospital and he's the priest. I mean, it's kind of logical that he would be in the area. I think it'd be more suspicious if no one saw him there. Yes, but wait, they have more evidence. They have Father Jeffrey Grove, a priest that is an expert in church rituals, and the occult is put on the stand. He tells the jury after studying the case that he believes the killer had professional knowledge of church rituals. Professional knowledge? What does that even mean? He thinks it could have only been a nun, a priest, or a seminarian that could have had this knowledge of the symbols used. For instance, he said the murder took place the holiest time of the year in a room where the blessed sacrament is kept between Good Friday and Easter, which Catholics consider to be the body of Christ. He goes on to say the altar cloth is used to cover the altar of sacrifice. So I guess getting back to your earlier question that I said it come up later um, is the significance of the altar cloth. Maybe it's a stretch for me, but you have that. So he believes the blood on her forehead was used to make a cross and the inverted cross on her chest can be represented as St. Peter, who the Catholics consider the first pope was crucified on an upside-down cross, or it could be intended for satanic worship. This is considered an expert witness for the prosecution. I mean, to be honest, his testimony seems pointless, though. He's just guessing at what the killer may have been doing and saying only someone like a priest or a nun can know these things. I'm not Catholic, but I would think some of this stuff is kind of standard. I totally agree. This is what they have, though. When the jury goes into deliberation, they come back out and find him guilty. He's sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. He ended up dying in prison in 2014. In my opinion, there were way more reasonable doubt in this case than there was evidence that he was a killer. I don't know. What do you think, Danica? I think I can't convict on what they had. I mean, I wasn't the jury. Maybe there was something really compelling but this feels a little like West Memphis 3 to me like it they convicted on nothing I agree but maybe it was because there was so much cover-up and so many crazy things going on um that they had heard about I don't know that still is no excuse when you have really no evidence but that was my only thought maybe it was just all of the things that they had heard about 
the cover art search. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. But still, I mean, you can't convict somebody for what other people have done when you have no evidence of anything, in my opinion. I mean, the only evidence is he was in proximity, but I mean, he's always in that proximity. (laughs) Yeah, he lived and worked there. So, uh, it's a tough one for me. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't convict him, but I don't know that he's innocent either. That's true. But, you know. He died in prison, so he's dead and we'll never probably know what actually happened. I don't think they'll open this up because the moment is closed. Which is wild to me. Yes. It's an interesting case, though. I think it's very fitting for our Easter weekend. I still would like to know whose male DNA this is, but I'm assuming we'll never know that. Yeah, I think that's the part that throws me is like there's clearly DNA and it doesn't match him. It's probably not him, but yeah. I'm sure that everybody was um, as unbiased as they claimed they were when they ended up on that jury. They had some probably some ill will feelings towards the Catholic Church for sure. Yes. But you guys let us know what you think. And in the meantime, enjoy your Easter. We always recommend more bubbly. And less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.